And I'm Kyle Thompson. And I'm Wendy Liu. And you're listening to General Intellect Unit. And as you can tell, we're joined by Wendy Liu, returning guest, um, to talk about her book, Abolish Silicon Valley, um, which came out April, maybe? Was it sometime in April during Corona, corona season? Uh, is that right? April 14th, yep. Fabulous. Yeah, just about just about on time for the, the major lockdowns to actually happen, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, grim. So, yeah, uh, Wendy, what's, what's it been like re- uh, releasing a book in the middle of uh, Nobody Can Go Anywhere season? You know, it actually hasn't been too bad, and I think I might like this better because I can just stay at home, um, do interviews, do, uh, like, virtual launches, and I don't have to spend, you know, 10 hours on a train or anything to get around. So it's not been too bad. Um, I Yeah, I'm, I'm very grateful that I have, like, a safe place to be during this time. Uh, and, you know, my life hasn't really been that different. It's just I can't really leave the house, but otherwise things are fine. I'm doing pretty well. Um, like, I'm healthy. And yeah, I'm just, I'm just grateful that the book is able to come out and that people are able to see it and read it. Um, yeah, it hasn't been that bad. Um, I would, I would recommend this. Outstanding. Yeah. I've, um, I've, I've been quite fond of, uh, of, of lockdown, I, I gotta say. Um, cause I mean, uh, you know, a pretty, pretty much a borderline shut in most days, you know, and, uh, <laughs> when this all started, I was like, oh, I could not be more in my element. This is, this is wonderful. Um, but I, I also know people who are having a really rough time because they like to go out and talk to people and, and look at things. Uh, but we're off topic. Um, so, uh, this, this book, we've, we've been waiting on this one for a while and it's been widely anticipated, um, for us and we've, um, uh, ever since you were on the show previously, we've wanted to get you back on to talk about it when it came out. Um, so uh, in, in Silicon Valley style, Wendy, what's the pitch for the book? What's, what's the elevator pitch here? Sure. So the book is, it's a strange blend of memoir and cultural criticism. And what I'm trying to do with the book is tell my own story of being disillusioned with Silicon Valley in a way that it that helps people to, you know, come along with me for the journey. Because I what I want what my goal with the book is to get people to think, oh, the the industry is pretty broken, but it's not just the industry. It's not as if Silicon Valley created these problems. There are broader structural issues with how our socioeconomic system works. Um, and what if we actually want to tackle the things that we don't like about Silicon Valley, we will have to tackle these broader structural issues, which are much harder and it's very confusing, but you know, that's why, that's why books are useful. Um, and what I'm trying to do is uh, basically give people a vocabulary for discussing these socioeconomic issues that they might not have been exposed to otherwise, because I certainly did not understand any of these issues until just a few years ago when I forced myself to start reading sociology, economics, um, stuff like that. So it's like the book, I think of it as kind of like a bridge for those who are dissatisfied with the way the tech industry and just, you know, the, the world in general, um, and hopefully exposing them to like a new set of ideas and theories and perspectives that, um, will also, you know, broadly, uh, like ultimately unite them with this larger movement of people who have been, uh, being, being active and who are, you know, resisting the way the world is for a really long time to help them understand that there's a history, that there are a lot of people here and that there are a lot of ways of seeing this, um, that they're not alone. And there is this kind of active movement to try to contest the worst bits of capitalism. Mm-hmm. Excellent. That's um, right up right up our alley. Um, I very much enjoyed the, um, the book because um, I, mean, I, I kind of found... It, it was it was weirdly familiar to me, you know, like because um, I, I, you know, I when I was a 
like a teenager around 20, I was an anarchist and that kind of thing. And then I kind of got out of that and kind of just went into general life stuff and then kind of wandered into tech and so on. And I kind of picked up just the, you know, the, the general ambient sort of uh, libertarianism there because I just wasn't thinking about things really. Um, but all, all the all the stuff in your book about the, just the, the, the creeping disillusionment and the the sort of, you know, little fractions of, of critique and stuff that wouldn't land with, with the people around you. And that sort of thing was just so, so familiar to me. Um, it was a, it was a real, I really appreciated it as a, the, as a memoir, you know? Um, yeah. I, I think this, this memoir is really valuable right now because I may be wrong on this. I, I don't live there, but um, I do get a strong sense that this COVID crisis is really marking the beginning of a new era in Silicon Valley. And the memoir element of this book strikes me as kind of like summing up what the previous era was, what it, what it, what the experience was there, and the sociological dimension or the cultural critique really maybe provides a bridging element to where we are today. So for example, I'm thinking about how um, in reaction to sort of unionization, there's been an increasingly sort of reactionary or authoritarian turn in tech firms, but it also seems that there is a kind of freeze that's happening in terms of just general activism or freedom of thought in these firms these days. Um, and yeah, I, I just, I just see this as a really valuable, uh, bridging piece. Mm, that's a good point. Yeah. I guess I hadn't thought of it that way, but you know, now, now that we're seeing, you know, all these layoffs and also these companies cracking down on dissent, it does feel like we're moving into perhaps a different, a qualitatively different era of what it would be like to be in the tech industry. Um, yeah, and I'm I'm pretty worried about that because it's unclear what it's going to be like. It probably won't be better. It's not magically going to get better. So in a sense, you know, my book might be chronicling the 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 best times of the industry, which is uh, terrifying, <laughs> terrifying to think. Yeah. Like, yeah. Did you suspect at all that your your book would end up being the tombstone for that particular era of Silicon Valley? You know. <laughs> oh my God, no! I, I kind of just assumed things would like progressively get. A little bit worse, but just not in any, not with any rupture or anything. But right now, you know, just because of the pandemic, things could change so quickly. I mean, we've already seen all of these layoffs for companies that we previously thought were just these, you know, amazing unicorns, and that's that's terrifying. Uh, who knows what that, what you know, what does that portend? We don't really know. Is that will that lead to better things for the industry in the long run? It's it's hard to tell right now. Yeah. And I, I think the the move towards um, offsite work uh, and the distribution of work uh, outside of the campuses is really going to lead to a different culture. And we've already seen how this is um, oriented towards suppressing wage levels. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I really see this as like a new era and it's exactly as you said, it's, it's quite worrying. Yeah, the funny thing about the, um, you know, Facebooks, for example, their work from home 
policy announcement where they said, yeah, you can you can work from wherever, you can move to wherever you want, but we'll pay you less if you do. Uh, I think that I think some people are trying to defend that on the grounds that you know Bay Area software engineers are paid too much already, and it's like sure they are relative to the median worker, but the goal of this is not to equalize wages among workers. The goal is just to you know give less. Income to labor and keep more yeah. of it for capital. So I think, yeah, I think like people. I feel like people in this industry are not nearly cynical or skeptical enough of those in positions of power. They like to think like, oh yeah, Mark Zuckerberg is doing this because he cares about income inequality in the Bay Area. It's like, no, this is just what capital always does. They will always do this. Exactly. It's the same argument that was used against.、Um Unionized workers who had a higher wage than non-unionized workers for like you know decades.、Um, It was funny.、Um, there was an there was、uh, obviously there was an article about this on Hacker News or whatever, and I, I still go to that accursed site for to to kind of like torture myself. But、um, I, I I made a remark there that like oh this this whole thing it it kind of proves it basically proves、uh, again like that Marx was right about the wage actually being about the reproduction of the labor at a certain standard of living rather than being actually related to the value produced, and they did not like that.、Um, I got down downvoted pretty heavily pretty quickly. So、um, yeah, I don't know. This, why, why do we bother swimming in this fucking stream? I wonder.、Um, <laughs> I certainly should not really participate in any of that stuff anymore because it, it doesn't doesn't do my my well being any good.、Um, and the message never seems to actually get through to these folks.、Um, but yeah, I mean, like,、uh, so Wendy, like, a, a lot of your kind of a lot of the book, the the memoir part of it is about this kind of like transition from being a person who is like really into the kind of the the internet culture and the hacker culture and the, the startup culture. Um, and kind of, kind of having these like, it, it, there's a lot, there's a lot of work in there about like the legitimation narratives, right? About like the personal validation and about like how, as a, as a sort of microculture, that culture like really believes in like the the validation of the system, right? That like there's all these kind of elaborate.、Um, Justifications for why the thing is the way it is, and then kind of coming to these kind of like creeping realizations that it's it's all just just bullshit, you know.、Um, so, I mean, can you talk talk us through some of that? Like, I mean, were there like any particular standout moments that really broke the mirror、uh, for you? Ah,、uh, yeah. I mean, that that's something that I'm still kind of trying to work through. The, the book was an attempt to、um, figure for figure out like how I personally. Keep the terms of that, and how I had built up this narrative in the first place. But at the same time, I think it's a very complicated thing, and obviously everyone has a different experience with it. So my story is not going to be identical to anyone else's. But for me, I think part of what it was is just、um, uh, feeling from a young age like I was undervalued、um, socially. Just you know, when I was maybe like twelve to sixteen, I just had I had like a pretty lonely childhood.、Uh, I didn't have a lot of friends. I spent a lot of time on the computer, and I found this community where I felt like finally I was valued for my intelligence,、um, and then I think from that, just from this feeling of resentment and insecurity, I had kind of concocted this whole narrative that you know if I if I just kept working on this part of myself, then、I'll, I'm going to grow up and I'm going to you know it's a whole revenge of the nerds thing,、um, and this is this was not rooted in a, from a place of like logical reasoning. <laughs> it was it came from a place of like deep insecurity and discomfort. With、um, who I was and my place in the world, and you know, I think that's I definitely see like traces of that in some of the people who are powerful in the industry today. Not not all of them, but I think there's definitely an element of that that's unfortunately quite overrepresented in this industry, and that's a hard thing to break out of because 
after a certain point, it stops. It's not just a coping mechanism. It's it becomes like part of your own identity. Um, and as I grew older, you know, and I matured, I found ways to feel more comfortable in the world. I didn't need it as much, but still, there was a certain level. There's a still like there's a part of my brain that still wanted to believe it, wanted to believe that as long as I worked hard, that because I was just you know more intelligent than other people, then I would get what I deserved. And, and so that made it easy to look around at the inequalities and think, okay, well, that's fine because the people who are, people who are homeless, the people who are like working minimum wage jobs, they just don't deserve as much as I have because they just must have not worked as hard in high school. And, you know, that's, that's like a very weird thing to think. And even when I say it now, it just feels so horrendous. And so at the time I like, there was an inkling that something felt wrong about it, but I also didn't really know what to do about that. I was not connected to like a social movement that could kind of explain why I felt that way. And so for me, I was just like wrestling with the stuff in my head, trying to figure out, you know, how do I justify the fact that as a software engineer at Google, I can make like over a hundred K just coming out of school while all around me, there are people in the city who are, you know, one paycheck away from homelessness. How do I feel comfortable with that? The only way I could figure out was like, well, there has to be some kind of meritocratic sorting going on and th the reason it's fine is because like this is you know the best way to organize society because people like me are creating more value than all these other people and you know that's like that was always hard I think there was always a part of me that just didn't fully accept it but I I told myself that and I felt like I had to because that's the message that I'm getting from all the powers that be like there's, you know, if, if this wasn't true, then Google wouldn't be paying me this much money. They wouldn't be paying their contractors like so much less money. I had to, I had to tell myself the story, um, partly because it made me feel better about myself, but also because it fit the way the world seemed to work. And, and I think that that's, that's part of what made it so difficult to, to counter because like, if I told myself, well, this feels selfish and wrong, I would just have to look around and say, oh no, you know, the, the billionaires, they're all saying the same thing. They're all saying that they make more money because they create more value. And if there's poverty, then it's because those people just aren't good enough or something. It's like, okay, well, there's no, I could not find an alternative narrative, like a counter narrative that had any purchase. Um, and I think that the way it started to fall apart for me was, partly just paying attention to the stuff going on in the tech industry where you had all these companies that they were, you know, right out of the gate, they were, they were praised for being innovative and uh, Theranos is a great example. Um, and then over the years, it, it became very clear that they weren't <laughs> actually as worth as much as, you know, the people said they were. And I think that that just made me think differently about the nature of wealth and hype and like, what does it mean for someone to be worth a billion dollars? Um, and then at the same time, I was paying attention to kind of the other side of things. I was paying attention to the Uber drivers who were committing suicide because they weren't able to make enough money to pay off their debts. I heard about, um, you know, people in the U.S. who were rationing insulin. And I just thought like, wow, there's, that doesn't feel right. Um, I was paying attention to the Greek debt crisis. I didn't really know what that was about, but I think I just had the sense that there were all these things going wrong in the world. There were all these, um, to use the software analogy, there were these bugs in the system. Whereas I was only focused on, you know, like adding this new feature, uh, but I didn't realize that there were so many bugs and that other people had such a negative experience of the way our socioeconomic system worked. I just had no clue. And so I thought, well, I should start to pay attention to what these people are saying. Um, and one thing that I, I recount in the book, that it, like an in-person conversation I had was, um, I went to this event in London where I met this 
a gig worker who he was, he was also an actor. Um, but he, he did food delivery to pay the bills and just like kind of hearing his story, which wasn't even, it wasn't even that difficult. He was just kind of matter of fact about it. I just thought like, well, I never had to do food delivery to pay the bills because I kind of just assumed that whatever I was passionate about would always give me enough money to do whatever I wanted. And then I thought like, well, why is that? Is that a result of my own personal brilliance or is that just the result of labor market conditions over which I have no control? And if it's the latter, then why do I feel justified that I'm able to make so much more money than someone else who might just be as talented and as hardworking as me, but who just has like has interest in a different field. Um, and then it kind of started, it started to hit me just how arbitrary all of this was. Um, and that it was really just ridiculous for me to feel so much pride in being able to command a high salary when I had no control over the macroeconomic conditions that allowed me to reap the fruits of my, of my hard work. Um, and yeah, and I think, and I, I guess it like took a while. It wasn't like one thing that made me change my mind, but it was just this accumulation of, um, realizations and contradictions that I could no longer fit into my preconceived notions about how the world was supposed to work. And then eventually I just thought like, well, I, I don't buy this anymore. I can't go back to my old life. Um, I don't know what I'm going to do, but I need to find a different way of thinking. Um, and then I started meeting more people who had gone through the same personal journey that I had um, from a variety of different backgrounds. And that helped me to feel a little bit less alone. Uh, and so, you know, writing the book was partly just trying to explain to people that if you're somewhere in that journey, there is a way out. <laughs> you don't have to be, you know, mired in this um, swamp of like just demoralization, disillusionment, uh, and like feeling shitty about yourself forever. There's there is a way out. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's extremely valuable, right? Because um. Uh, like it, it, it's it's not an accident that like uh, a general kind of liberalism or libertarianism is the kind of natural fit for this kind of environment because it it's it's a sort of a ambient philosophy that encourages you to only focus on the the individual actors and particularly your individual actor and like the the subjective kind of uh, positions there and like subjective notions of value and wealth and all this kind of stuff and it's then you get these kind of couple of events where that like help you to basically see the matrix and like once you've seen the structure and you've realized oh actually hold on like this it, it seems that the outcomes aren't actually related really to the atomic components it's the structure that dictates the outcome and then there's that kind of rush of realization of oh oh shit i i can't go back to not being able to see the structure now um and then you know it, it brings you into contact with others that are doing, and that's that's another thing that's kind of more or less forbidden by the, the 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 mainstream ideology right is like comparing notes with others and and working out that like uh, you know maybe maybe there's something going on here and maybe maybe we all kind of have um have perspectives on us right yeah for real i think uh one way i think about it is like the ideology that i definitely had in my early days in tech it was a bad extrapolation it was me you know making some sort of assumptions about how the world worked based on my very limited experience of you know my own experience and you know, this 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 idea that if i worked hard and invested in you know human capital or whatever then i would i would be able to profit from that and 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 so it it kind of worked for me so it's like meritocracy insofar as i understood it it did seem to work for me and so i thought well if it works for me then clearly it just works in general and it never occurred to me that i was only ever able to see one side of it and that my very limited experience of it was not universal um, and i think that it's this part of this extrapolating the personal to the universal 
that was my problem. And once I realized that my extrapolation was just, it was missing like a big part of the picture, then that's when I started to feel really silly. I was like, oh, okay, oops. Wow, I was wrong. Oh, I was just going to say like, um, you know, one of the the first texts that I was assigned in grad school was uh, C. Wright Mills' uh, Sociological Imagination. And it just it just really strikes me that like, yeah, that's that transition where you go from having a very uh, individualized understanding of the world to actually having a sociological imagination and being able to extrapolate beyond just your personal uh, circumstances. Um, what's that? Um, what's that like thought experiment where it's it's like an ethical thought experiment? It's like the veil of ignorance or something like you, you get to rebuild the rebuild the world in whichever way you want. And it's, it's not a monkey's paw thing, like it'll actually happen. But the, 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 the one catch is that you will be randomly reassigned to another another body and another personality. Oh, that's uh, that's Rawls, right? Or no, no, no. Yeah, 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 uh, it's John it, it is? Yeah, 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 Rawls. Yeah, yeah. It, it's the, uh, what is it? The um, uh, original position. Mm-hmm. The original position, yeah. Cool. Yeah, that was that was one of the things that helped, helped me along to kind of like come back to to a sort of leftist politics was kind of like getting reacquainted with that mode of thinking. And it's remarkable how the day-to-day life in in this kind of environment, in, in you know, neoliberal acid bath hellscape, and spe- specifically in the tech industry, can really prevent you from thinking in that way. Like it's, it's a, it feels like, the reason it feels like loading new firmware into your brain is because the firmware that's been installed there by your exposure to computers and capital as as is, is so degenerated and horrible that uh, these these really basic ethical thought experiments feel very strange and alien initially, <laughs> you know. Yeah, yeah, for real. I think the the dominant ideology that we've come to associate with um, you know our current late stage capitalism, neoliberalism, whatever you want to call it, is just one of individualism and atomization, and you know this idea that if you as an individual are responsible for everything you achieve or don't achieve in life. Um, and I think that makes it very difficult to think of these like structural problems because then, then you think, Oh, well, I'm just, I'm being a victim. I'm trying to find the excuses. If, if I didn't, if I got fired or if I'm not doing well, if I'm not making as much money as I thought I would, I've just done something wrong. And of course, like that's what, that's what those in power want us to think because that precludes us coming together to bargain for something better. But at the same time, like this is something that many of us are conditioned to believe from an early age. And, um, so this is something that I, I found like a kind of a common thread and a lot of stuff I've been reading, um, of memoirs and personal essays people are writing from about organizing and just like from kind of a leftist perspective, people in all these different fields from academia to, you know, tech, um, just any any kind of like professional a uh, field with like professional aspirations is it's a very common thread where you think that you you're not supposed to organize you think that like joining a union and bargaining together is not for you that's for weak people whereas you you are really talented and hardworking and if things aren't working it's because you haven't worked enough and and I think that's like that's something that's extremely common in tech but you know it's also happened that's something that's also um, common to a lot of other fields. Uh, and there's an essay in M plus one by Alyssa Battistoni called spade work, which is about the process of organizing, um, political science students at Yale. And, you know, people who are like PhD students of Yale, of course, they're very similar to tech workers who, and, and that they also are likely to believe that they're very intelligent and hardworking and that, um, you know, they just have to push a little harder than they'll get what they deserve this dream that they've been sold, 
um, you know, that they'll, they'll reach the promised land. I think a lot of tech workers um, have kind of heard the story in some way or the other too. But, you know, in the end, it's there's so much outside your control. And I think that's something that we're starting to see now with all these layoffs and the changing economic conditions in tech. Even though, even though like you as an individual are responsible for a lot of what you can do, you know, we can't discount that because I think people people who are used to working with computers do recognize that there is something about their ability that can change, you know, what what they can do. Um, still, there's so much of it that's outside your control. And it's like this part that's outside your control that that's kind of what really matters in the, in the long run. That's the biggest part. Um, and yeah, and I think uh, dealing with this ideology that wants us all to be individualized, atomized uh, consumers, that's that's like the first step to gaining any sort of broader consciousness that will allow us to actually challenge the conditions of you know the industry and capitalism as a whole. Right. And just to uh, sort of expand on that a little bit, um, you talk a lot in this memoir, uh, in the memoir section of your book, about uh, your experience with startup culture. And one thing that struck me uh, in reading that was it wasn't really so individualized. There were characteristics of the startup experience that in a way really reminded me of like, you know, left secklets um, or <laughs> cults, right? Uh, there was that kind of like reading group dimension to it. Um, whereas kind of like collective reading sessions and like struggle sessions in a sense, um, happening and, uh, the way in which like, it wasn't sort of purely an ap- I- extrapolation from your experience because there was a lot of literature you were reading that was coming from like Silicon Valley thought leaders. So I was wondering if you could speak to that a little bit. Yeah, sure. So my experience of startups was informed partly by myself and my co-founders going through an accelerator and doing a lot of, um, you know, the whole startup building on our own um, and, you know, joining various communities and talking to investors. But it was also just shaped by what we believed it would be from what we had read in books and seen on TV, like watching HBO Silicon Valley. And so I think we had like a very muddled and idealistic conception of what it would be like. Um, and also because like a lot of the stuff you hear about in the media or read about, that's that's a story of success, right? It's it's much rarer to hear the stories of failure because people aren't as comfortable sharing in detail their failures. Whereas Elon Musk, for example, you know he he's like if you read his um, his biography, then you kind of get a very particular notion of what a startup looks like, uh, you know, from the point of view of someone who succeeded. So you have, there's a lot of survivorship bias going on. And so, you know, my understanding of the startup um, ecosystem and what that was going to be like, it was extremely naive. (laughs) Um, But I think like what you're saying about it not being that atomizing, it's true. Um, It was, there was a sense of solidarity among me and my co-founders and that it was us versus the rest of the world. And you know, that was, that was like a really beautiful feeling when we had it, but it was also one that led to a lot of paranoia and, uh, because we thought like everybody else was out to fuck us. Like we, it was, it was us versus the world. And so we had each other, but also we had nobody else. 
Um, and even our investors, we weren't necessarily, or the people we wanted to invest in us, the people we were working with, like as partners, we all, we thought they were all out to fuck us. Um, and that just that was just like a really kind of negative, weird place to be. We were we were always fighting, even though we were supposed to be on the same side. We, you know, there was always like uh, differing ideas about how to do something. We fight all the time. There's a lot of secrecy. Um, sometimes it'd be amazing. Sometimes it'd be horrible. And yeah, I think it was a it was a very very heightened experience where because we really felt like we had to work as hard as we'd ever worked. Otherwise, we would perish. And so everything just felt so much more intense. Um, it was very difficult. I think the uh, the literature and stuff I'd read about startups it you know made it clear that it was a very intense experience. I didn't realize how quite intense it would be. Mm. Uh, it really just took over my life and I was just so stressed out all the time. Um, and yeah, I guess I kind of took that as a badge of honor where I thought that if, if I just, if I go through all these experiences like twice as fast, then my startup will be twice as good. <laughs> of course. Right. There was something I absolutely loved from those sections, right. That, um, that really resonated with my own experience that like a lot of this stuff comes, I mean, it obviously comes from kind of place of weird privilege and stuff to be able to work on these kind of things. But a lot of this drive comes from a, a real desire for autonomy in the workplace and, and for a desire to control one's own destiny. Um, which of course then runs into the brick wall when you realize that even even if you kind of get the ideal startup success, your your life is still disciplined by capital, right? Like it's still disciplined by the market, so you're not really free. But like I, it reminds me of um, speaking to a coworker ages ago, and like they were saying like, oh well, you know, the, the, doing a startup is such an obvious thing because it's the only way to retain all the value that you actually create in your job so you're going to have to go to a job anyway if you like you can either give up like 70 percent of your value or you can keep it and like so it's an obvious choice to keep it and like it was really interesting to me like you looking back on that that that, that per- he had a basically kind of labor theory of value thing rattling around in his head but i'm pretty sure he'd never like read marx or he wouldn't be able to name it right but he was d- deeply intrinsically aware of exploitation and the the nature of of the workplace and you know if you if you don't want that kind of a shackle around your neck you know it's like well you got to go do your own thing because we don't have like communism as an alternative to it yet you know what i mean um yeah yeah i like that i think uh, there is this kind of intuitive desire for you know greater autonomy and self-determination that a lot of people have and that in the tech industry um people get like a greater taste of right because if you're a programmer you do have quite a bit of control over what you, um, how you build something is just you, you are more, therefore more aware that there's a lot of control you don't have, like you can't control what's being built. And sometimes, you know, you realize that what is being built is actually actively harmful or like against your moral code. The problem with startups. So I, I talk about startups as being this kind of false escape from the kind of, uh, um, control that you're subject to in the workplace, because it feels like, it feels like there's this place um, where you can escape these shackles, but it's it's not really, because at the end of the day, you know, sure we can talk about how you get to control most of your value, but that's only if you don't raise capital from outside investors. Because as soon as you have investors, then they're the ones calling the shots. And even even if you don't take investor money, if you're trying to build a startup in, you know, a certain industry, you're going to have to do what other people in the industry do, and maybe that will mean doing something you don't agree with, because like. If your goal is to make money, um, then you're subject to the the forces in 
the rest of the socioeconomic system, which means you might have to work with people who you find morally objectionable. You might have to create products that you don't think should exist or that you, that might be predatory because that's what it takes to succeed in this like horrible, corrupt world. And, you know, I think that people don't think about that enough because they're just like, oh, well, if I have control over my own startup, I can do it the way I want. Like, no, you can't. You think you can. If you get big enough to actually matter and you decide to take a moral stand, your investors are probably going to push you out. They're just going to say like, you know, we this person doesn't understand how business works. They're just too naive. On the other hand, if you do compromise, sure, you can keep your power, you can keep your money, but then what are you doing? Are, you know, you end up doing things that go against your value system. So I think it's like, it's, it's tricky in that, um, I understand the appeal of startups. It's something that definitely, you know, spoke to me when I was younger, but I think I was very naive about just how much freedom was actually possible within any sort of capitalist system. But I think that, you know, the, the desire for self-determination and autonomy is a very deep one. And that's one that we should figure out figure out how to realize. Uh, and, and, you know, in the latter half of the book, I talk about the Lucas plan and other proposals from the past for how to give workers more autonomy, because I think that's like, that is the important thing. That's the thing we should seize onto. Startups as they are now are like a false um, promise of that. Like they, they do not actually offer the kind of self-determination that we want. And what we what we should strive for is building a world where everyone gets like a reasonable amount of autonomy, um, you know, in, in a way that actually is good for society as a whole, because I think the, the, uh, the promise of, um, caring about shareholder value, like the, the justification for startups being governed by, you know, being beholden to their shareholders and the industry as a whole is that this is what's good for the, the world as a whole, right? There's this idea that the forces of the market somehow conspire, you know, the invisible hand will somehow make everything work out in the long run. And I don't think, I don't think that that like promise is holding sway for a lot of people anymore. I think people are starting to see through it because they they look at the the level of wealth inequality that we have now. They see that you know two thousand one hundred billionaires have more money than four point six billion people, and they're like, wait, what? Like, is that actually what's supposed to happen? So yeah, I, I don't think I don't think this uh, this dream is really making sense anymore. And I and I, I do hope that as people um, in the industry think more about like autonomy and self-determination and how to best achieve that, they recognize that startups are not the answer, but that instead what we want is just greater worker control over production as a whole. And that's not that's not going to happen by, you know, an individual jumping into some whatever startup they want to do. That's going to happen um, by fighting collectively with other workers to try to change the world in that way. Absolutely, yeah. There's there's a really wonderful uh, quote at this big, the beginning of I think chapter ten, right? That like it's a, it's a quote from Alan Kay, with um, the the originator of object oriented programming, and he's he's going on about like these kind of like you know Darwinian processes and stuff and this like fitness thing, and he's, he says like if you have a stupid environment, you're going to get a stupid fit. And, you know, in, in one sense, the this market stuff is a sort of optimization engine, but it's a deranged optimization engine. It, 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 it optimizes for the stupidest possible thing that it can it can produce. And it, it's a it's 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 a it's creating an environment that's pathological to live in. Um, it's it, it really is a kind of machine gone mad. Um, 
And it's, it's really important to push back on, right? That like the, the notion of like, oh, well, you know, the, the market's the most efficient thing in the world. It's like, but yeah, but efficient at what? <laughs> you know, or like, what's the what's the thing that it's doing? And then, you know, you think about it a little bit and, oh, it's it's this demented kind of blind idiot god thrashing in the void. That's that's what it is. That, that's the kind of intelligence we're, we're thinking about there, um, which isn't really intelligence, right? It, it, and it's not, it's, not the, it's not the kind we should care about. Uh, so I loved that, that poll quote. It's just, it's just really fantastic. Yeah, yeah. There's a, there's that um, thought experiment from AI about this paperclip maximizer, mm-hmm, sure, uh, right? And I think that's like a really relevant one here. Where you know, imagine you have an AI that is just its only goal is to maximize how many paperclips are produced, and then it ends up killing the entirety of humanity and turning the earth into a big paperclip factory. And it's like, yeah, it's it's good at its goal. That goal might not be compatible with what we as society want. And I think we have to start thinking about capitalism that way, this way, especially like, like what is capitalism fundamentally? What is the definition that its critics and its proponents would agree with? Probably something to do with, you know, accumulating capital, um, like concentrating, concentrating wealth, uh, this being this engine that allows goods to be produced and keep moving. But what are the assumptions in that? I mean, one of those assumptions is that nature is free and that time doesn't really exist, I think, is, is like <laughs> this kind of way of thinking about it, right? It's like, um, the, it doesn't, doesn't really have this concept of like the environment changing in, in a way that might um, erode the foundations for capitalism in the first place, because that is what's happening. If we look at what's happening to the planet, if we look at what's happening to the composition of society and how many people are suffering right now, it's not working anymore. The assumptions that... Um, that were in place when this whole experiment began, they're just they just don't really make sense anymore. And so I think it is way past time to start thinking about like a different system, one that recognizes that for one, nature does have limits. You can't just it's not just like this free source and sink where you can just take whatever you want out of the ground and then dump it back and expect things to be fine. And also that people do have their limits too. People can only take a certain amount of indignity and suffering before they recognize that, you know, this is just not worth it and they're going to fight back. Uh, and I think we're like, you know, we're seeing more and more aspects uh, like of the world get to that point. And it's, yeah, it's, it's really frustrating that there are people who still defend the system as it is now when, I mean, it feels so clear to me and hopefully to you guys that like it's not mm-hmm. working. <laughs> Absolutely right. I feel I feel like people have started to walk that down though, because I mean, like I mean, uh, ten years ago, I used to hear more of the like, oh no no, cap- capitalism really is the optimal sort of system, and then it goes to well, it's not really optimal, but it's pretty good, and then well, it's not actually pretty good, but it's the only one that's po- that's possible. It's like well, others are possible, but this is the one we've got, and you know, I feel like they've walked down to a point where they, I, I don't really actually hear much of a defense anymore. It's just kind of you know, the the question gets dodged more so than it gets answered. You know? Yeah, I think we're. We're, we're kind of at a scary point right now with like platform capitalism where essentially the justification for keeping capitalism going is to keep these platforms running because they're what keep us alive. <laughs> and, you know, even in, in, in the sense of like a consumer society, like having the delivery of media or consumer goods is kind of what's keeping us sane in this like, you know, very atomized um, situation that we're in. Uh, it's, it's really quite terrifying. 
Mm-hmm. Or even just like the amount of like um, the kind of industrial commercial substrate, which basically all passes through Google servers because everyone's using fucking Gmail and uh, Google Docs internally. And it's like, yeah, you know what? Like if, if that stuff was to kind of blip out of existence, it would probably be just the end of civilization, really, realistically, because like so many supply chains would come to a, an immediate halt. And so much, uh, so much cr- critical kind of uh, production intelligence would just be like, oh, where, where's the, where's the like production numbers? Which it's in, it's in Google spreadsheets. Where, where's Google spreadsheets? Gone. Yeah, th- there's this really good science fiction novel called Infinite Detail by Tim Mon, and it's the the book uh, is just like this thought experiment of what would happen if the internet suddenly shut down. And, you know, the answer is just catastrophe because so much of global production relies on the internet now. And unfortunately, there's no way to just shut these platforms off and expect things to get better. Instead, things will just like get worse. You'll have all these like fascist groups come out of the woodwork. Um, People won't be able to get anything because like containers, container ships will just kind of be they'll just be like, they don't, they just won't know where to go. Um, and I think what, what the book is showing us is like all of these, um, systems, these techno systems that are operated outside of our control, like outside of, you know, the control of ordinary people, they have become so fundamental to just keeping everyone alive and keeping things going that there is no easy way out. We can't just turn things off and fix things. And that's, that's quite terrifying to me. Uh, but I think, you know, it, it does point, it, it does point toward the need for, um, greater control over these, uh, forces of production, uh, in, in, in a way that is, um, I think, you know, compatible with the message of my book, which is that like tech workers need to be part of a collective movement, um, and technology needs to be deployed and developed for the benefit of the people, because we, we can't just like turn our back on technology. Unfortunately, it's, we've gone to the point where technology is just so deeply entwined with the way society is structured that I think the only way forward, is, the, the, the only way to get out of this is just to go, go forward um, and to find a way to like take control of this technology uh, for the people. And I think that's also a, a decent lesson for, uh, for socialists, right? Like for the, for the left that like, um, there's, there, there's, there really is no way back, right? I, even, even if you're not an accelerationist as such, like there, there is a kind of fundamental admission that things are different and that like the, the relations of production are very, are, are different now. There's just, there's a lot, a lot has changed, you know, and, um, we kind of have to make peace with the reality of what hyper-capitalism is and like move, move forward through it rather than kind of daydreaming about 1917. Um, you know? Yeah, yeah. I think uh, I I was reading this um, speech by Pablo Iglesias of Podemos, where he just talks about how like politics is terrible, and you know none of us want things to be like this, but this is just how it is. And I think it it also echoes um, what like a a lot of uh, a lot of left thinkers have had to grapple with, just the fact that we we don't you know we don't make history in conditions of our own choosing. This is just this is just the like horrible fucking world that we live in. We have to start from where we are and just you know, apply the kind of analytical tools that we have to try to figure out what we can do. Unfortunately, um, things really do suck. And the left is always at a disadvantage. That's kind of just, that's kind of like the constitutive feature of the left. It's just mm-hmm. the definition of the left to always be marginal and at a disadvantage and trying to do something that's basically impossible. But yeah, this is just the task that's in front of us. Right. Um, so I guess uh, I would just, like to maybe speculate on, you know, 
What are some openings? What are some avenues for us to do that these days? Uh, because I think we can agree uh, with, with, with your points there, absolutely. Um, but we're in a position of, I guess, like intensification of the situation you describe in the book, uh, but also very rapid change. So is there just anything that's been on your radar as interesting um, that we, we might want to look to in the future? Mm. Oh, good question. I think, I think we're going to be seeing a lot more labor organizing happening, um, even in industries that haven't traditionally had unions or industries that are so new that it doesn't really make sense to talk about unions. Um, I think the gig economy is like going to be a very important sector of this sort of, of this sort of thing, just because, uh, you know, you have these workers who for so long have been given so little control over their wages and conditions, but now they're being told that they're essential <laughs> and they're not, they're still not given the kind of safety protections or control that they really, that they really deserve. Um, and I think that's leading to all the, these contradictions are leading to this kind of explosion and we're seeing people organizing, um, who are like Instacart shoppers, Uber drivers, that sort of thing. And also, you know, Amazon warehouses. I don't know if that, we don't usually talk about that as the gig economy, but maybe we should um, just because of the way some of these workers are being paid. Uh, and I think just in general, like there's a, there's only so much that working people can take before they recognize that things don't have to be this way and that it's, it's worth you know, standing up for what they believe in. Uh, I've been reading this book about California labor history, and there's this, uh, it's called From Mission to Microchip by Fred Glass. And, you know, the, there's a chapter on the 1934 general strike in San Francisco. And reading that is just incredible because, you know, it's so hard to imagine that happening today. But at the same time, like, these were just ordinary people like, like, like us who at some point decided that the old way was just no longer worth supporting and they're going to do something, even if it meant maybe risking their livelihoods and their lives. There are some people who, who died in the, um, the lead up to the strike. Uh, and, you know, I think the conditions of today aren't that far off from what they were in the 1930s. There were, you know, widespread unemployment. You had um, a, a lot of people discovering that they deserved more than what they were getting from their employers. And they were willing to fight for it. So I think I'm, I'm hopeful that we'll see more labor actions um, because I think the, the labor movement for me is just the, the most inspiring and powerful source of leverage that we have now just because of the way capitalism works. And, you know, I don't think things are going to look the same way as they did in the 30s. The mode of production has changed. The systems are all very different. You know, capital is no longer... Um, is no longer wired the way that it was in the 30s. And I think we're going to have to think of more creative ways to resist. But at the same time, um, if, we're, if we're trying to resist capital, capitalism, then it's important to locate the sources of leverage that people have. And one of those really important points of leverage is um, workers at, you know, in the place of production, especially workers who are at a choke points of some sort, like logistical workers, um, people working in the tech industry who have the power to, say, shut down, shut down the internet if they so wanted. Uh, and I think, yeah, I think um, a lot of other places like hospitality or um, education, the medical medical system, there are a lot of points of leverage where if something like that were to shut down, then that would have a massive impact. And I think, you know, it 
this is like, for me, the most crucial terrain for socialists and the left is just class struggle. How, you know, how do we resist um, in the mode of production? How do we find a way to challenge um, capital at the very place where they derive their power? So yeah, I, I don't know what the answers are. I think I'm, I'm, I'm like very excited by all these developments coming out of the labor movement and all these people who are, yeah, who are innovating on like ways of resisting in, in the field of production. Yeah, absolutely right. Because I mean, uh, as much as things have changed, and it's, I mean, it's a, it's a point that we keep harping on on the show in general. But like, there are invariant features. It's class, society, and labor, and the mode of production. Right? They're the same as ever. Right? Like the there is there is a core logic to resisting that stuff that um that is is basically invariant. Um, even if the the form of the resistance and the the, the form of the particular. Um, uh, the, the particular situation changes over time. Like it's you're still good old fashioned exploitation, folks. You know it doesn't doesn't actually change that much. Um, yeah, yeah. And I think I mean I'm sure there's people doing this right now, but it may be worth you know kind of going back to Hobbesbaum's "The Forward March of Labor Halted" and seeing what our our situation uh, post COVID outbreak looks like relative to what he's describing there because you know we have the invariant conditions of capitalism but he was talking about the, the variant conditions and how that was under undermining uh labor's power and i think you know a, as you're describing wendy with this kind of realization of of the essential nature of labor and with the kind of all-encompassing uh monolithic sort of nature of platform capitalism, you know, there may be ways in which we can reevaluate that sort of pessimism we see in, in, in Hobbesbaum's article um, and and see new new locations for, for struggle. Yeah, maybe that's one for the show, actually. We should read that one. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Classic. Almost yeah. certainly, right? Um, yeah, definitely. I think, I think yeah, oh, it's it's a hell of a question, right? Um, there's, a, there's a lot to think about there. Um, yeah. Um, so, I mean, is is I, maybe a final question before we start to wrap up? But like with uh, COVID nightmare, is there anything? I don't know. Like, if if you could add another chapter to the book, or if 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 it had kind of passed through this time and you were you were finishing up around now uh, for the writing, do you have any any sense of what that final chapter would be, or what would be like? What 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 would you like to address if you had another go at this? <laughs> That's a great question. Yeah. So I think. So I, I finished writing the book maybe like, I don't know, eight months ago or something like that. I was just editing for the last few months, but I mostly wrote it about a year ago. I wrote most of it like last summer. And my personal political framework has changed a little bit since then. I, you know, it hasn't changed dramatically, but I think when I first started learning about the left, I was just interested in a different way of seeing the world. I didn't really dive into specifics, and it's only been the last couple of years that I've gotten more interested in class struggle, specifically in like labor movements um, throughout history. So I think if I were to add another chapter to the book, I or if I were to rewrite the book, I would write it with more of an emphasis on worker organizing, um, the kind that's going on now and uh, has been going on for a while. Because also like the tech worker movement has developed quite a bit since I since I wrote the book, and there's a lot that I only like briefly mention, um, which has developed a lot. And uh, in California, you know, we've had AB5 pass, which um, it, it is a law that would make 
gig workers at companies like Uber and Instacart in, you know, into full-time employees or like clarify that they should have been full-time employees all along. So there have been a lot of developments on the, the, the worker organizing front. Um, and so, yeah, I think if I would add some more to the book, it would be just like, people have to pay attention to labor history <laughs> because if you, if you read the, once you read history, you, re- you recognize that the things that tech workers are saying about their jobs now, the, the reasons people give for not wanting to organize, they're the things that people have been saying throughout history. And those are just routinely defeated by, by time because eventually, you know, the boss will just come in and say, oh, we don't need to actually pay you this much money. We don't need to give you that much flexibility. We can make more money if we outsource your job to Eastern Europe or something. Um, and, and then, you know, you can you can talk about meritocracy all you want, but you're just going to be shit out of luck. So I think it's like, it's just so useful to recognize, um, to like understand how the way the world works, just to like pay attention to all these labor struggles that are going on around the world. So yeah, I would just probably add some more about that. And, and also, I think with coronavirus and the way the tech industry is changing, I think what we're seeing is the tech industry is, um, it was never really an industry. <laughs> it doesn't really make sense to talk about it as an industry. And the fact that we're seeing this kind of bifurcation of companies, the ones that are doing well and the ones that aren't doing well during this time, it's, it's really hammering that point home that like Yelp and Airbnb and Uber are not the same kind of company as Amazon. It just so happens that they're part of this very small, um, nascent industry that we call tech. But at the same time, like a lot of companies are now, they use tech in some way. Uh, maybe we should start thinking about this differently and recognize that th- the the pandemic is not affecting these companies in the same way. Some of these companies mm-hmm. are just getting more powerful. They're gaining more control. Others are finding their whole business model threatened. They're going to have to make huge layoffs and they're probably not going to be able to hire again um, at like full-time employee rates for a while. I'm, I have a feeling that a lot of these companies are going to be turning more to outsourcing and contractor work. And generally just like, we're not going to see the kind of irrational exuberance that we saw in the industry prior to this. Um, I read this one book called uh, Down and Out in Silicon Valley. It's it's by these um, psychologists who have been practicing in, in Silicon Valley for a while. And this book is about 2000, 2001. It's about the dot-com era and how um, after the crash, all of these software engineers and um, ambitious people working in tech suddenly realized that the good times were going to last forever. And they all experienced this like really difficult loss of identity. And I think, you know, like reading this, it feels very similar to what we're kind of going through today. Um, I, you know, I hope that things don't get too bad. Like I, I don't, as much as I'm kind of, you know, unhappy with the way the tech industry works, I don't want people in the industry to suffer. I like, I think that's, you know, that would be awful. Um, but at the same time, I think that's coming. I think we're going to see more layoffs. I think we're going to see um, a kind of contraction of the, the easy flowing money in the industry. And I think it's going to be very hard for a lot of people. And I'm really worried about, especially people who are in university right now, who are going to graduate Ooh. during this tough time. Ooh, boy. Like what <laughs> yeah. are their job, what are their job prospects going to be like? And it's not like, it's not like there's an easy solution because, um, whatever industry they end up going in, it will be tough for them. So, I mean, my hope is like the, the silver lining in this hopefully is that, uh, these, these people who just decide to fight for something better because they, you know, they, they recognize that it's not going to be given to them, that capital will not just give them the kind of the things that they deserve in life that sometimes they'll just have to fight for with what they believe they deserve. Yeah, indeed.
probably good note to end on. Um, thanks, listeners, uh, for coming with us. Thanks, Wendy, for coming with us. It's been wonderful. Uh, we really should get you back on the show more often. Um, so uh, is there any, I mean, there's, you obviously want to plug the book, but is there anything else you'd like <laughs> to tell the audience about anywhere people can find you online and so on? Uh, yeah, I'm I'm on Twitter. Um, my username is Dell System. Don't ask. A long story. Um, but I think, yeah, in general, if people are interested in learning more about, like, just labor today, um, I would recommend another podcast called Working People, which is like, it's just, it's incredible because, you know, it just interviews workers from all these different industries and also like academics and activists and researchers. Um, and I've had my mind blown by that show so many times, just like hearing about someone's life and what prompted them to organize their workplace or what kind of working conditions they've experienced because like I think it's hard for us to know this stuff unless we make an effort to seek it out um, but I do I do believe that like understanding how work looks today and how it's worked in the past is key to having a better understanding of the world because so much of our social system is structured around work um, and then another thing I would love to plug is Logic Magazine. It's a periodical magazine about um, about tech, uh, critical ways of understanding the tech industry. And they recently put out a zine called The Making of the Tech Worker Movement, which is like a great look at how the tech worker movement has evolved over the last few years and, you know, hopefully where it's going to go in the future. So I don't know if you guys have talked about it on the show yet, but if not, it, I think it'd be really good material. Yeah, we absolutely should do an episode on that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I got a weird feeling we've, we've already read an, uh, an article that was in Logic, but maybe not. There's a great magazine, yeah, but we should definitely take, check out that, uh, that, that uh, zinelet. Um, that would be straight up our alley. Yeah, fabulous. Um, cool. Uh, you can catch us on the internet as well. Uh, we're on Twitter as GIUnitPod. Uh, we're on Facebook, all the podcast apps, all that kind of crap. Um, if you go to patreon.com slash generalintellectunit, throw us a couple of bucks a month, you get access to the community discord because it's, it's really, really hopping place. There's some really good stuff going on in there. And um, yeah, there's, there's, there's a lot of folks in there involved in organizing actually, which is, uh, which is pretty, pretty rad. Uh, I forgot the rest of the fucking readout. There's something <laughs> else. Oh, the Emancipation Network. Yes. Um, uh, emancipation.network check out our sister shows uh, From Alpha to Omega Swampside Chats Jumpsuit Utopia and Mortal Science is that all? have we got more shows? no that's all of them okay yeah that makes sense. <laughs> I, 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 I keep adding more um, the new one Mortal Science is really really fucking amazing <laughs> it's just it's really good yeah that that intro episode was so good. Yes, it's, it, uh, Esri and, and Derek just following through on that that long lingering threat to uh, to make a podcast uh, along those lines. Uh, it's it's astonishing. It's good stuff. Anyway, yes. And uh, on uh, from Alpha to Omega, we're just finishing up uh, the 18th Brumaire. So if anyone's been waiting uh, till we get towards the end and like, is it actually happening? Yes. We're, 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 we're drawing up on the final chapters. Uh, that didn't take you nearly as long as revolutionary strategy. No, it's been way more breezy. It's been way faster. Um, indeed. Uh, yeah, cool. I, I don't know. Wendy, any other uh, final thoughts? Uh, no, thank you so much for having me on the show. And I hope, uh, hope you're all, all well during these weird times. And I hope all our listeners are, 
doing as best as they could possibly be doing. Indeed. Yeah. Um, hopefully, <laughs> you know, who, who knows, maybe somebody's crouched in a bunker somewhere with a, a cassette recorder listening to this. Um, <laughs> uh, how would they get it onto the cassette? Uh, I don't know. Uh, but yes, thanks, Wendy. It's been wonderful. Um, we'll, we'll certainly have you back soon for another episode. But um, I guess, thank you so much. Yeah, it's been wonderful. Thanks. Um, all right. Thank you, guys. Yeah, yes, that's everything. So uh, we'll catch you all again in a couple weeks. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 Bye.